From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're beginning a a new series, a short series tonight called The Shadows of the Cross. And for the next three weeks, we want to look at how different Old Testament passages and themes, events, and people, and so on, set the stage for the coming Messiah. Meaning, these and other Old Testament passages, they provide categories, if you will, so that when the Messiah comes, God's people can know the person and the work of Christ. Theologians call these categories types, and Jesus, the fulfillment, the substance, the antitypes. Now, if those don't mean anything to you, it's okay. Uh, But uh, we're going to work with that, okay? Let's pray together, and we're going to dive right in. Father, we're asking that you will come now and you would open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wonderful, beautiful, powerful things in your word. Give us faith so that we don't just hear, but that we would believe your word and that by believing that we might be transformed into the likeness, the moral likeness of Christ, our humble servant, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin tonight with a word of apology and a clarification, because the last time I stood here and preached, I mentioned something about my health diagnosis, and I intentionally left it ambiguous because I didn't want to overshare, uh, but many of you were confused, and some were even concerned, and uh, many of you were urgently and uh, Frequently lifting up prayers for my health. So thank you for that. So I want to clear the air, okay? Uh, I'm diabetic. I'm not sure if I'm type 1 or type 2. The doctors are not sure either. They're still trying to figure that out. But I am diabetic. And it started with leg cramps. Now, there's a reason why I'm telling you all this, okay? It's going to segue nicely into the sermon, okay? You're like, we don't care. (laughs) It started with leg cramps, and uh, it wasn't because I was exercising. They just happened, and it was random. One night, it would be the, the left calf, and the next night, it would be the right foot, and then the following night, it would be the left shin, and so on and so forth. There was no rhyme or reason to what was going on with these leg cramps, and so I did the only reasonable thing, drank a lot of Gatorade and stretched. Right? That's, you deal with these kind of things. And so I did, and it did not help. 
day after day after day, these things kept coming. So I shared this with my brother who lacks a little bit on compassion. And he just looked at me and said, you're probably diabetic. And I was like, really? That's all you got to say, man? He's like, yeah, you're probably diabetic. We'll get it checked out. So um, instead of getting it checked out because I'm allergic to doctors, sorry, if you're in that field. Okay, I love you as a brother and sister in Christ, but I just, ugh. If I can avoid it, I will avoid it at all cost. So uh, I did uh, the only thing I knew how to do, right? Well, if you have diabetes, you can beat it with diet and exercise, and that's what I did. I took out carbs, most of it, and uh, when I told my kids that daddy can now no longer eat rice and noodles, they said, daddy, you need to turn in your Asian card, and I was utterly broken. I was, come on, really? So I cut out carbs. Uh, I replaced my late-night meals with nuts and fruit, and I started running. Can you imagine that? Me running. I have said from the pulpit that I don't get you guys, and here I am running. And I started lifting, and guess what? The leg cramps went away. Problem solved. Life is normal, right? Well, it lasted until last November, and the leg cramps returned. And that's when I realized whatever it is I have, it's pretty bad, so I need to go see a doctor. I went to see a doctor and find, I found out, now for those of you who are in the diabetic world, you know these numbers and letters, so I'll just share it with you. And if you don't know what it is, it's pretty bad. That's all you need to know. I found out that my A1C uh, was 13.4 and the sugar level was 506. And the doctor was like, I'm going to call the ambulance right now. You need to go to the ER because you're going to die. I was like, what? Really? I'm going to die right now? And she's like, no, you're going to die. Uh, I was like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Just give me a minute to process this. And uh, as I'm trying to make out the words that I just heard, I was utterly crushed. And that's when I realized, okay, I, I got to do more than stretch and drink Gatorade. I, I really need help. It was the first time I came face to face with this sickness, if you will, that was deeper than just surface deep. You know what I mean? I really thought I could cure it with stretching or running or dieting, but I needed help. In Numbers 21, the passage that was read to us, that's exactly where we find the Israelites. Sure, they complained here and there. They grumbled about food and weather. I mean, who of us here would not? They spent years in the desert eating the same thing. But surely that wasn't just a symptom of something much deeper. Maybe. And sure enough, God knew that as the Israelites were getting ready to enter into the promised land, that he could not simply let them live like this, and that he needed to address the problem. And let me just say, the problem is not just venom. The problem is something else, more serious. And in order for them to be the people of God, called with the mission of God, then they needed to address this first. Now, we're going to look at Numbers 21, and we're going to sort of study the passage in its original context, because when you do that well, the message sort of jumps out at you. You don't have to guess, okay, what the message is for us 
because it would become obvious. With that in mind, let's turn now to this chapter and let's look at two things together. First, let's look at the problem. The book of Numbers basically covers the 40 years of Israel's journey from Mount Sinai to the outer borders of the Promised Land. By the time we get to Numbers 21, the generation that came out of Egypt has mostly died, and those that grew up in the wilderness are now preparing to enter the Promised Land. But they run into a literal detour because Edom, Israel's close relative, refused to give Israel passage through their land. Now, you might think, what's the big deal? Maybe a few more minutes added to your trip. No, that's not what was going on. This meant a month-long detour in the most difficult part of the entire wilderness journey. I mean, can you imagine Israel's frustration and discouragement to come so close only to turn back and now have to wait? And I'm going to be honest. I can sympathize with the Israelites. I never want to spend more time than I need to in the DMV or the waiting room at the doctor's office. I am seriously, like I said, allergic to doctors and even more so the waiting rooms. And who likes eating the same thing every day? They ate manna for 40 years. Israel had enough. So they speak out against God and against Moses about everything starting from the Exodus. When you read the Exodus story and make it past Leviticus and you actually get into numbers, you get the sense that the story of Exodus is not Israel's highlight. Rather than being grateful, looking back and praising God for his power, his grace, his faithfulness, they hold a grudge because they didn't want to leave Egypt. They wanted freedom. They didn't want to lay bricks anymore, but they also didn't want to give up the comforts of Egypt. So they begin to sing the same song their forefathers did. But what's alarming about the remix this time is that it's the first time they speak against God. In all the previous times, Israel complained and grumbled, and they did so to Moses. You see, at least the first generation knew that we don't talk about Bruno. I mean, God. No, 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 not like that. Because one time they did, and Miriam uh, was cursed. And uh, she had few words to say about Moses' wife, who happens to be African, and something about Moses' leadership. And God said, hmm, really, skin color matters to you that much. Bam, turned her into basically white as snow. Or remember the other time when they spoke out against God? God decided to open the ground up and swallow people. You don't speak against God. Mm -mm, No. But the second generation is brazen enough to speak against God directly. Desert madness is real. They ask, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There is so much here, but let me just say, remembering the gospel is everything. It's really our spiritual battle. 
You see, with all the chatter going on in the world, with all the worries that we sort of nurse in our own hearts and minds, the gospel gets pushed out so gradually. Of course, you believe in it. It's not like you don't believe in the gospel, but it's no longer the thing that grabs your heart, your imagination, the engine that drives you. And when that happens, the wheels come off real quick. Look at what they have already forgotten. They don't seem to remember the horrible bondage and mistreatment in Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years. They forgot that they ended up in the wilderness in the first place because of their sin of unbelief. Remember, they said, there is no way we can take that land. They got some big people there, man. And they hit the weights like crazy. There is no way us scrawny people, mm mm-mm. And God said, that's enough. I'm going to teach you. It's not punishment, but it's discipline, as we will see, because God is preparing them for their work. And most importantly, they forgot that the wilderness is not their final stop. Yeah, it was a long pit stop, but it's not their final stop. For this generation, in Numbers 21, the next stop is the promised land. They're so close. But their main complaint is not the exodus, it's not the wilderness, it's food. Can you relate? I know I can. Food is important. Come on right? We're not that spiritual, are we? We enjoy good food here and there. They say they're about to die because there is no food and there's no water. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates verse 5 as, there is absolutely no food and no water. Israel was good at many things, but lying uh, wasn't one of them. Because right after they say there is absolutely no food and no water, they say, and we loathe this food. It's like, what? You're about to die because you have no food, but you hate the food you got? I mean, how many times have you opened the fridge and looked at all the food in there and said, man, there's nothing to eat here? Right? I do that all the time. You see, they're not about to die. They're just sick of manna. And I get that. But what is manna? It's God's gracious provision. Isn't that scary? Later on, Jesus would pick up on this very theme, and he would refer to himself as the bread that came down from heaven to feed the people. This is not just free food. Go out and collect as much as you can for the day type of thing. It was God's grace extended in tangible form. And yet the people are saying, this is miserable. This is contemptible. I'd rather die, honestly, than to have another manna casserole. Talk about biting the hand that fed you. And yet we're not much different, are we? How often do we take God and his good gifts for granted? How often do we become cold to the gospel? How often do we ignore the call to love God and love love neighbor well because it's too much. I got enough going on. I don't want to be inconvenienced. You see, the real problem, the very core issue here is sin. All the complaints, the grumbling, Those are all symptoms. 
of a much deeper problem called sin. Now, what is sin? Sin is ultimately rejecting God and replacing him with something else. That's what sin is. To put it differently in the ways that we talk about sin here, we say it's doing the wrong that you should not have and not doing the good you should have. But all that really stems from rejecting God and replacing him with something else. Sin, in its practical outworking, is what you sense to be wrong with this world. In those quiet moments when you listen to your heart and you sense the hatred, bitterness, anger, lust, all these things that are deeply lodged in your heart, the Bible says that's sin. In fact, the Bible says the seed of every sin is in our hearts. And if not for the grace of God, those things will grow and bear much fruit. The the fact that some people in our city are marginalized because of their skin color or gender or class is at the very heart sin. The fact that the weak and the poor are exploited at the heart is sin. That justice and equity are withheld from those that absolutely need it at the heart is sin. And God knows this about Israel. But Israel does not. And that's why God provided manna all those years. You don't believe me? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Now listen. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. This is not because God did not know what was in Israel's heart. God knew exactly what was in their heart. But Israel did not, and he wanted to show them what was in their heart, so that by seeing what was really in their hearts, that they would look to the Lord, confess, and trust in him. Because that's the only way they're going to live as a people of God. And that really is the main message of Numbers 21. For 40 years, God has been preparing his people to enter the promised land so that they not only enjoy the fruits of the land, but that they, by living out the calling to be the people of God, can be a blessing and light to the nations. This is what God is after. Okay. So Israel is here. On the plains of Moab, they are so close, they can almost see the promised land up ahead, but they're not ready. They are not ready. Something had to be done. So without any warning, God sends judgment in the form of fiery serpents, and as a result, many people die. It would have been just for God to let all the Israelites die in the wilderness for their sin of unbelief but he intervenes. You see, judgment is never the end of the story. God disciplines us for a while, and there's always a greater purpose to that. 
You see, Numbers 21 is not just a cautionary tale. It really is a reflection of the human race. The story of the fall back in Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, basically sinned and replaced God with something else, tells us that we have all been bitten by a serpent. And ever since then, all of us were guilty of sin and deserving of God's judgment. And you don't have to be a Christian to know that humanity is broken. Just read the news headlines and you know that something somewhere went terribly wrong. And your personal experience, your own heart, your relationships, the people you live with and work with tell you that. They confirm these things. And the consequence of our brokenness, the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, is death. Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death. Now, this belief might uh, chafe against some of your sensibilities, but you know a world without justice is not good nor right. We need justice. Evil must be punished. But the good news, as I said, about this story is that judgment is not the end. God intervenes. He extends mercy and he provides grace in an unusual form. So let's look at that together. The solution. The Israelites confessed their sin to Moses after seeing God's judgment. And this is quite the improvement from the previous generation. Unlike their forefathers, this generation recognizes divine judgment and they quickly repent of their sin. They ask Moses, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. They want the problem gone. These serpents are running wild. They're biting us. People are dying. And you would think God would, boom, gone. No. God does not answer their prayers in the way they anticipate. They want God to remove the serpents, but God had other plans because he knows that the real problem is not the serpents. The real problem is sin. And that's what he's trying to deal with. So he instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent or a fiery serpent, as we have read, and put it on a pole so the people can look and be healed. And for those of you who are well-versed in the Bible, you're like, oh, this sounds like something in the New Testament. And you are right. The Israelites, as they're hearing Moses give instructions, they're like, wait, what? You want us to, like, look to this bronze snake, and then we're somehow going to be healed? Give me a break, man. Like, we're not that stupid. We've been around the block a few times. Sure, the desert, but we know that looking at a statue isn't going to heal us of deadly snake bite. It made no sense whatsoever, but that's exactly what God tells him to do. Why? Because he wants them to trust him, to believe in his word and act. Isaiah, many years later, reflecting upon this passage, writes this in Isaiah 45. This is what God says to Israel. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. You see the difference there already? Numbers 21, just a group of Israelites in the wilderness, bitten by serpent. 
Isaiah 45, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. We might be willing to do a hundred things to earn our salvation, but listen to what God says. He commands us to simply trust in him and look. As modern people, it's tempting to think that the solution to the problems that we see around us is education reform, better health care, higher wages, better policies, and so on. And don't get me wrong, these are all important things, and we need to advocate for all of these things so that everyone can thrive and flourish in the city and beyond. But these things will not solve the problem of sin because they don't address the heart. Imagine if you had a fruit tree in your backyard that was constantly bearing rotten fruit for some reason. It would be wrong of you to go down to Giant or Whole Foods, if you're really slick and wealthy and can afford that, and uh, buy a bag of really nice, you know, shiny fruit, and then bring it home and take down all the rotten ones and staple on the good ones and say, there, there, that's a great tree. Like, it makes no sense. You can't simply address the symptoms That's like me trying to drink more Gatorade and stretch out when there's something much deeper. And God is drawing our attention to that deeper thing. He says, look within. Look at your heart. Many years later, in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus refers to this very story. Nicodemus was an expert in the Old Testament, and undoubtedly he knew. He knew this story. He knew that Israel sinned, God sent judgment, but God also sent mercy and salvation in a form of a bronze statue, and all they had to do was look. So Nicodemus is like, where are you going with this? And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up that bronze serpent, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Wait, I can get the bronze statue, but the Son of Man, God himself, would be lifted up on the cross. This, I can't compute. It costed nothing for Moses to build that serpent. Yeah, it took some time to hammer that thing out. But for God himself to come down and to go up on the cross, to be hung on a tree as a condemned criminal, cursed by God, that makes no sense. Why would God do such a thing? to save us sinners when we have time and time again done nothing but harden our hearts to his wonderful grace and truth. And Jesus would follow that up with John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What was blurry in Numbers 21 now all of a sudden comes to sharp focus. The Israelites weren't sure what was happening They thought, sure, we sinned, now judgment. I get it. God is just. After all, look what he did to Egypt. 
When they were unwilling to let us go, he destroyed them. Okay, I get it. But Jesus says, no, you missed the whole point. The call of Abraham, the deliverance from Egypt, bringing you through the wilderness and into the promised land so that you can thrive and flourish as the people of God, so that when people go through Israel and see your way of life, your worship, your devotion to God, they would say, wow, God loves you. There is no other God like this in this world. God who would bless his people so unconditionally to dwell so closely. And Jesus would say, yeah, that was just a shadow of the real thing to come. Because that very God would go the full extent. And he would give his life for his people. The Israelites in Numbers 21 could have never imagined that one day their God will come and take the place of what was essentially a symbol of judgment and death. God's people, let me end with this thought. The Lord loves you. Do you know this? No, no, don't, don't qualify it. Don't, don't be thinking about the person next to you who is a lot more spiritual than you. God loves you. And he proved it once and for all on the cross. What the Old Testament people sort of got, we get it completely. And he wants you to live out of that. Why? Because in order for us to live faithfully as a people of God, to love our neighbors well, and to live out the mission of God so that people in our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces can say, behold your God. Wow. Your God is not like other gods. Only way we can live that life is by being so moved by his love for us. So let's let his love compel us to be faithful witnesses in this city. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you tonight and we thank you for your word. Thank you for the story that we heard about in Numbers 21. And thank you, Jesus, for being that very object, the symbol of not only God's judgment, but of his love for us. Lord, help us to look to you all the time, that that would be our habit. Every day we would look to you and find your love to be all the motive we need to live our lives faithfully to your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen.